Let's turn, please, to Second Peter this morning, Second Peter chapter 1, and also Numbers in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 23. And we might even get to one of those passages during the course of the message. In the spirit of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that we are his workmanship and that we have been prepared in eternity past for certain works to walk in. And in the spirit of 1 John 3.17, if we have it by us and our brother has need, in the, under those two concepts, we're once again cooperating with the Salvation Army in New Kensington during the month of May. And thank you for your generosity already in this. We'll be collecting non-perishable food items and paper products for the New Kensington Salvation Army, another faith based organization we stand shoulder to shoulder with them so keep them coming keep the non-perishable food and paper products coming they'll be of great use as we've said before there's a lot of secular organizations that once supported the salvation army but no longer do so because they are so-called faith-based so we brethren got to stick together and that's what we're doing and before we get started in Second Peter 1, I see out in the audience my first contacts with the ministry here with this area of western Pennsylvania back in November of 1978. And I want you all to give them a warm welcome home. Dave and Katie Tom right back there. They were in many, many ways, they were the providential means of my getting here in the first place and our first hosts in this area in Indiana, PA. And as I said before, when they told me I was going to Indiana, I thought it was the state for about three weeks. So I kept looking on the map and then they said, no, it's in Pennsylvania, you idiot. And I said, okay, so, okay. Second Peter chapter one and verse one, during the course of my study, I have found more than ever the profound influence of the Apostle Paul and the glorious apocalyptic revelation that was given to him on not only John in John's revelation, but also in Peter, in Peter's epistles, Second Peter, most notably. Please read with me the first silently. You, you read silently, I'll read out loud. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter an imperial slave, an emissary of Jesus Christ. My translation, this is almost like Paul's introduction in Romans 1.1. To those who have received, please notice it, received, to those who have received a faith, or we could translate that, a faithfulness of equal value to ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a debate as to whether that our God and Savior both refer to Jesus Christ, which I tend to think, or if the Father and the Son are both referred to in this, which is also feasible. But let me read it again. Simon Peter, I say an imperial slave because it's an understood thing that Jesus Christ is the king and that he is the human representative and the divine representative, human and divine, of God the king whose righteousness is demonstrated by an act of rescue and deliverance, which is the only the right thing for a king to do toward his people and toward his domain. That's what the righteousness of God is defined and rooted in Psalm 98. 
We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. It is he that has made us, not we ourselves. All those who preach the word ought to be aware that most, most of our sentences should have God as the subject of the verb in those sentences, not us. It is God seeking us and finding us. It is not us seeking God and finding God. Simon Peter, an imperial slave and apostle or emissary of Jesus Christ, to those who have received. Now, the verb here is an aorist verb, which is a simple past tense, really, of the Greek verb lagkano or lankano. And it means to receive by lot, to obtain freely, to receive by election. There's many ways, but it's always a sense that it's been obtained by us. To those who have received a faith of equal value to ours, that is, to Peter and the other apostles, the other emissaries of Jesus Christ, a faith received, please notice that, obtained, received a faith of equal value to ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We can translate that in the Pauline sense. The righteousness of our God is the deliverance that he enacted in Christ on the cross for a desperate creation and a desperate humanity under Adam. They received then, that's Peter's audience, as we have, a faith of equal value to that of Peter and the other apostles. Another place where this verb is found, lagkano, that's L-A, it would be look like this more like in the English transliteration, lagkano, is found also in Luke chapter 1 and verse 9, and it means specifically to obtain by lot. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, won what would be to us the lottery. It would be like them pulling up to your house with the van with the big check. He received the allotment that was given to a priest once in his lifetime to have access into the holy place, to burn incense on the altar. And that's where he heard the voice and saw the angel. Zechariah obtained by lot. The word is used here, Lancano. He obtained by lot or election the once-in-a-lifetime privilege of going into the sanctuary to burn incense on the golden altar. Robertson thinks, that's A.T. Robertson thinks, and probably rightly, this lot was what the Son of God or the Son of Man referred to in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 17, a white stone given to the winner. So here we have the lottery winner. The white stone was given to winners. It was by election. So it's not unlike in its power, the idea of winning the lottery in our parlance. But the idea is that it was allotted to him by grace. It was granted to him without any earning or deserving on his part, as is the gift of our faithfulness. The reason it's equally precious in every case, whether it's Peter's faith or your faith or Peter's or mine or Paul's, whether it's because it's equally precious And it is equally precious because it's the faith of Jesus Christ. It is our participation in his fidelity. Second Peter, in one sense, is a summary of Pauline doctrine. As we know, if you read the end, and I'm not going to go all the way there today. I might follow this up a little bit Wednesday and Thursday. If you go to the end of Second Peter, 
You actually find him referring to Paul in all of his epistles in which he speaks of these things. These things include the patience of the Lord that is salvation for all mankind, 2 Peter 3, 8, 9, 2 Peter 3, 15. The new creation where righteousness is at home or the divine deliverance of God is universalized. That's what the new creation is. Ultimately, the new heavens and the new earth for which we hope is the universalization of the glory of Christ throughout all of creation, which is inevitable. So the allotment or once in a lifetime privilege was not earned by Zechariah in Luke 1. It came to him by election. Likewise, we have received a faith or a faithfulness of equal value and equal to the apostles like Peter. And again, I ask the question, why of equal value? Isotimos is the Greek word. Isotimos, equal value, involving equal privilege, involving equal access. Why is it of equal value? Because it is in every case a participation in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. For he is the author and perfecter, not of our faith, but of faith, period. He is the author and the perfecter, the finisher of faith. Not just our faith, faith, period, or faithfulness, as Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 say. So it involves also why equal privilege? Because it involves our access to God in the Holy of Holies. We obtained by Lot, as a community, the same thing that Zechariah obtained, and he was very privileged, but we also have the privilege of access into the Holy of Holies. And therefore, being justified by faithfulness, that's Christ's faithfulness, we have peace with God or reconciliation. We have received the reconciliation, says Romans 5.11, that God has already enacted in Christ for the world. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And he has imputed to us or entrusted us with the ministry of reconciliation, with this word of reconciliation. For he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, the evidence of God's deliverance in him. So then, this is what is being spoken of. Why equal privilege? Because it involves our access to God in the Holy of Holies. We all have it. We all have it equally. We all have it across the board. Nobody has a line to God that is more than someone else's line to God. We don't go to people and say, please pray for me. I know you have a direct line to God. We all do. And that's what the scripture teaches. And Paul's the one that brought this out most notably. It involves, again... Our access to God in the Holy of Holies, therefore being justified by the faithfulness of the righteous one, which is the context, Romans 5.1, we have peace with God, and we have access into this grace wherein we stand. We stand in this grace because the blessings that God has given to us are irreversible and irrevocable, and that's what I want to get to pretty soon. So... In Romans 5.2, in Ephesians 2.18, we all have access by one spirit to God the Father. And because of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, again, it says that in Ephesians 3.12, by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, we have boldness with confidence and access to the Father. Equal access, says 2.18 of Ephesians, by the same spirit. 
There is one spirit. He's the spirit who baptized us into union with Christ. And we have seen that worked out recently in Christ. Jesus, our Lord is the key in Christ. Jesus, our Lord through his faithfulness. Again, this is three twelve of Ephesians. We have boldness and we have access and confidence. It isn't faith measured out here. This isn't a faith measured out where some have great faith and some have little faith. This is the faith of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ's own faithfulness. This is brought into an even clearer focus in second Peter one, four. Listen carefully to this. This is probably the most notable verse. When I read Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologica through all the way through, there were two verses that jumped out on the page for me that covered the whole gamut of theology. One was second Peter one, four that by certain fulfilled precious promises of God, we are partakers of a divine nature, partakers of the divine nature. The second one involved the Christian life in Philippians chapter two, verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because in verse 13, it is God in you both willing and working to his own good pleasure. It is God in you. More of our sentences should have God as a subject and less of our sentences, we as the subject. So then, this is brought into an even closer focus, clearer focus, in Second Peter 1, 4. You can, if you jump down there, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but Peter speaks there of great and precious promises. Great and precious promises, plural, related to our partaking in the divine nature. Now, something I've seen only recently and did not see before, that this is no doubt here a reference to the promise of Abraham and to his seed, the promise to Abraham and to his seed. And Paul makes it very clear in Galatians 3.16 that the seed of Abraham is Christ. The teachers that were trying to draw the Galatian churches away from Paul's gospel used Abraham as an example and circumcision as an example. Paul used the example of Abraham to draw attention away from Abraham to his seed. And he said, and his seed is Christ. When God pronounced the gospel to Abraham in advance, Galatians 3.8, this is how it went. In you and in your seed, all the nations, that includes Israel and all the other nations, it includes all mankind. In your seed, all the nations will be blessed. And that blessedness is a participation in the divine nature through union with Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So when the gospel was first preached, it had a universal tinge to it. It had the blessing of all the nations in one seed, Christ. When the gospel was proclaimed, it was proclaimed, listen carefully, as an unconditional promise. An unconditional promise. That's the gospel. It's the unconditional promise that in your seed, Abraham, in your seed is Christ. All the nations will be blessed. And that includes Israel among the nations, as we're going to see as we look more closely into Galatians. Peter is referring, no doubt, to this blessedness and to this privilege. So there is no doubt a reference here to the promise to Abraham and to his seed, which Paul deals with extensively. And we have to get to that eventually in Galatians chapter 3. 
Most often, Paul uses the singular word promise in Galatians 3. I'm setting you up for an exegesis of that passage. Promise singular. Most often, he uses the word promise singular because he's relating the promise, not the law, to the gospel. He's teaching that the law is like a codicil added to a last will and testament that does not in any way change that will and testament. And that means that the promise is not in any way invalidated by the addition of the law 430 years later. The law, in fact, is a cursing and enslaving thing. It's one of the cursing and enslaving suprahuman powers of the present age. The reason for that is not that the law is evil, but that the law has been co-opted by sin. And the law co-opted by sin is a cursing and enslaving thing. At the cross, Jesus Christ took the law away from sin and took it in his own hand and fulfilled it. For all the law is fulfilled in this one sentence. All the law, in fact, it says in the perfect tense, has been fulfilled in this one sentence. You will love your neighbor as yourself. When was that law fulfilled? When Christ gave himself for us, his neighbors, on the cross. When Christ gave himself for us on the cross, he wrestled the law from sin and took it into his own hand. So that if we bear one another's burdens as the Spirit gives us the power to do, we are fulfilling also, anaplerao, fulfilling again the law of Christ. It's by walking in the Spirit. Much more to be said on that as you can see. I've probably got heads scratching, so that's good. Most often, Paul uses the singular word promise. Galatians 3.14, Galatians 3.17, 18, he uses it twice. Galatians 3.19, 3.29, and then later in 4.23 and 4.28. Promise once, because the promise is equal to the gospel. And the promise is the promised spirit by which we become partakers of the divine nature. Partakers, most notably, in Jesus Christ's own life and faithfulness. We've all received the same life. When we were dead in sins, God made us alive together with Christ, Ephesians 2.5. When we were dead in sins, God made us alive together with Christ. We have a shared existence with Christ. It's not a matter of imitation on the stage of the world, trying to imitate Christ from outside of Christ. It's a shared existence of Christ in which the community called the church is gradually allowed, is gradually allowing the formation of Christ in us. That's my prayer in Ephesians. Make that Galatians 4.19. But Paul also uses the word promises, plural. Not to say that there's more than one gospel, but it simply intensifies the promise. The promises, plural, simply intensifies the promise because many times if you read Genesis, especially 15 through 22, you have God saying the same promise many times. So the promises are used twice in Galatians, in 3.16 and 3.21. He talks about the seed to whom the promises were made, and that's Christ. My faithful one, says the promise of God, will live by his faithfulness. My righteous one will live by his faithfulness. 
And I'm going to iron out some of these things, so don't worry. Don't think you're getting lost in this yet. As J. Lewis Martin has observed on page 339 of his commentary on Galatians, quote, the plural promises may reflect the fact that God repeated his promise to Abraham. The same thing is true in 2 Peter 1.4. Certain great and precious promises is simply the repetition of the one promise, the unconditional promise that all the nations of the world, including this community of addressable believers in Peter's time, are sharers in the life and faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So then, he says it again, the plural may reflect the fact that God repeated his promise to Abraham. Christ, who is the singular seed, in Galatians 3.16, in whom all the nations will be blessed, listen carefully, Christ, who is the singular seed, in whom all the nations will be blessed, with what? with a partaking of the divine nature. Christ, the seed in whom all the nations of the world, the earth, and all of its time will be blessed, is the same Christ to whom Paul refers when he says, as in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. So all the nations being blessed in the one seed Christ is the same as all humanity in Adam who are given life in Christ. And it's amazing how translations really flatten that whole thing out. They, they emphasize certain things in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, so that it sounds like everybody in Adam dies, but only those who get into Christ through their own faith are made alive. That's a flattened out translation, and it's a viciously delinquent translation it has nothing to do with what paul is saying there he's talking about two representatives of humankind two men one is adam in whom all the human race dies the other is christ in whom all the human race lives the same christ if you don't get anything out of this message at least get this the same Christ, Messiah, in Galatians 3.16, who is the singular seed of Abraham, in whom all the nations will be blessed, is the same Christ, in 1 Corinthians 15.22, in whom all are made alive. There seems to be a kind of a universality in the original proclamation of the gospel that's been lost. And it's been lost courtesy of exegetes of the scripture many of whom come from the Reformation, as we have been teaching recently. It is through the fulfillment in Christ of these great and exceedingly precious promises made to Abraham and to his seed Christ that we are partakers of the divine nature, that is, participators in Christ's faithfulness. We have received an equally precious faith or because it's Christ's faithfulness. It's a participation in Christ's faithfulness. That's restated in verse 4 of Second Peter 1, that we are partakers of the divine nature, equally partakers of the divine nature. You don't have some people made alive with Christ greatly and others made alive with Christ a little bit. We all have equal privilege. We all have the equal blessing. And the blessing is irrevocable. If there's any doubt of a connection here to Paul in Second Peter, I would refer you to the end of this letter once again, in which 
the first and only time all of Paul's epistles are mentioned. That's why some people think this was written later and don't attribute it to Peter because Paul's epistles were all in a collection. All of his epistles are mentioned. In fact, there's a traceable pattern in First and Second Peter that shows the influence of Paul's epistles on Simon Peter. Apparently, his influence on Peter at Antioch took root in Acts, or rather in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. The evidence of Paul's influence on Simon Peter is found throughout the Petrine epistles. An important example of this is 1 Peter 1, 3. In its comparison to Ephesians 1.3. Please note that. If you don't get anything else out of the message, at least note Ephesians 1.3 CP or compared with 1 Peter 1.3. Where Peter, like Paul, after greeting his addressees with grace and peace, as Paul does in most of his letters, Peter then uses the, the benediction just like Paul, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, or God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says this, God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his mercy, has given us a new birth into a living hope. According to his mercy, has given us a new birth into a living hope, a living expectation. And that hope is the expectation of the universalization of God's glory and grace. In Ephesians, well, first of all, let me finish this. In 1 Peter 1.3, God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his mercy, has given us a new birth into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In Ephesians 1.3, Stay with me. I'm doing this a little fast on purpose to keep this all hooked together. Ephesians 1.3, God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, has given to us every or all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. All spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus can be summed up as one great blessing. Let me say that again. All blessings in spiritual, all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus can be summed up as the singular blessing of our participation in Jesus Christ, sharing his existence, sharing his life, and therefore partaking with the triune God in fellowship. God is faithful who has called us into fellowship with his dear son, Jesus Christ, says 1 Corinthians 1.9. All spiritual blessings, Ephesians 1, 3, in heavenly places in Christ can be summed up as our participation in Jesus Christ, our shared existence with him in and by his spirit. Being given a new birth according to God's mercy means being born into Christ and having a shared existence with him. All spiritual blessings, again, can be summed up as our singularly great blessing of shared existence with Jesus Christ by the gift of the Spirit, just as promises, plural, can be summed up in the single promise of being blessed in Abraham's seed, 
which is Christ. The ultimate elect one is not you, not me, not Paul, not Peter, not Abraham, not Isaac or Jacob. The ultimate elect one is the one whom God points to in Isaiah 42, 1 and says, look, there's my elect one, my servant, the servant in whom he is well pleased. It's Jesus Christ. He's the one that was elected. And election is always with a view to the inclusion of others. And that's why Abraham, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In your elect one, in the elect one, all will be blessed. Jesus Christ says, First Peter, once again, verse 20, is the truly elect one. He is the elect one. And he was elected with the view to the inclusion of all. As in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. Abraham, in your seed, in your seed. That's the emphasis. It's not on Abraham like the teachers put it. And they took Genesis 17, 8 and said, if you're going to be part of Abraham's people, you Gentiles, you pagans have to be circumcised. Then you have to comprehensively fulfill the law as it was pronounced in Sinai and beyond. And Paul says, of course, that's nonsense. And don't be stupid and foolish, you Galatians. So in Ephesians 1, 3. All spiritual blessings are summed up in the singular blessing of our participation in Christ. And so in 2 Peter 1.4, Peter is kind of summarizing all of Paul's epistles as he is at the end. All of Paul's epistles speak in them of these things, of a new heavens and a new earth where God's deliverance is at home. That means we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which God's glory and grace are universalized and realized throughout the entirety of the universe. As Hebrews teaches, as Habakkuk 2.14 teaches, the glory of Messiah The glory of God will fill the whole earth. That's the glory we're waiting for. That's the glory for which we hope. So then, if there is a Pauline connection in the Petrine writings, then perhaps we can also take Paul's meaning of the righteousness of God, our Savior, or the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, as being the same as Paul's conception of the righteousness of God in Romans often understood by some as the justice of God, wrongly, others by the righteousness of God, wrongly, only rightly understood as the unconditional deliverance of God and the fulfillment of his promise in Christ. That's the righteousness of God. And so, does Peter have the same concept as Paul's conception of the deliverance of God wrought on behalf of all humanity? Does he have the same concept? The answer is, of course, he does. Humanity, incidentally, is seen as a single enslaved monolith, one big, gigantic mass in which all are enslaved to superhuman powers like sin, which has co-opted the law for its own benefit, for its own use, and death, which is a superhuman power, which is going to be destroyed and placed under the feet of Jesus Christ and already has been and is being vanquished every time someone is brought into Christ and given Christ's life. And then there's Torah, the law, also a superhuman power. Then Paul says in Galatians 
Chapter 5, there's a thing called the flesh. It should be capitalized because it's not your lower nature we're dealing with here. The flesh is a suprahuman, supranatural power, which is called the impulsive desire of the flesh that only the Holy Spirit can overcome. The flesh makes war against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And if you're not walking in the spirit, all you are is a Christian perpetuating your Adamic existence and perishing. Perishing. That's what perishing is. It's allowing Adam's ontology to continue. Please notice here. The righteousness of God and of Jesus Christ is the righteous act of a king through his human representative to liberate, to rescue, and deliver. That's where the word righteousness of God comes from in Romans 1, 17, 1, 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because therein the righteousness of God is apocalyptically revealed. The righteousness of God goes back to Psalm 98 where the same phraseology is found in the Greek of Romans 1, 17, the same phraseology in which God's righteousness is revealed as the righteousness of a king who does the right thing when he saves his endangered people and his endangered domain. And that's what God has done in Christ. The king in the scriptures, in the Psalms, always acts through a human representative. God the Father acts through a human and divine representative, Jesus Christ, to do the right thing when it comes to a creation and a monolith of humanity, the whole of humanity, and their desperate plight. Last week I made the statement, I made it again, I'll make it again still. When Jesus Christ screamed out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did so in identification with a creation in desperation. He identified with a creation, the whole of creation, which is groaning or screaming, is probably a better translation, in agony to be relieved and to be liberated from its slavery to corruption. Jesus Christ identified with the desperation of an enslaved creation on the cross. And in his resurrection comes the liberation of that creation. And in the eschaton, in his appearance, will become the actual realization of that, universally speaking. That's what we hope for. But right now, the real world isn't the world you read about and the world that you're excited about and the world that you see in media and Fox News and CNN and all the other outlets. The real world is the world ruled over by Jesus Christ. The real world is the world in which you are crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, you live, but Christ lives in you. That's the world that we're living in. It's the reality defined by Jesus Christ. That's what the church is all about. So, being given a new birth according to God's mercy being, means being born into Christ and having a shared existence with him. So if there's a Pauline connection to that, is there one to the righteousness of God? I think so. The righteousness of a king in through his human representative to liberate, rescue, and deliver his people and the domain over which he rules, which is all of creation, the universe we call it, is God's righteousness. By the righteousness of God, our Savior, we have obtained an equally privileged and precious faith. Listen carefully. It does not say that by our faith we obtained righteousness. It says by God's righteousness we obtained faith. I think that's clear. 
I think it's clear throughout all the Pauline epistles, and I think we can demonstrate it, and I have pretty much demonstrated it in every single case. Do we have faith? Do we believe in Jesus Christ? Of course we do. But we have received like precious faith through the righteousness of God. We have not received the righteousness of God through our faith. We have received the righteousness of God and a participation in Christ's fidelity through the fidelity of Jesus Christ. This gets down to the last stronghold that you have on yourself. This gets down to the whole idea of free will and the terrible, stupid slogan. God is not, God is a gentleman. He does not intrude into your free volition. That's a lie. God is gentle, not like a man. God is gentle like God, and he precisely does step in and overturn your enslaved will in Adam so that In salvation, your will is freed. Then God doesn't step in and violate your freed and liberated volition, but he commands you to obey the truth and use your freedom as a base of operations. Not for the flesh, which is a superhuman power, but for the spirit. If you sow to the spirit, you will reap from the spirit a harvest in connection with your life, the eternal life. If you sow to the flesh, you shall from the flesh. In other words, with your freed volition, you can still choose to try to reconfigure the Adamic ontology. You sow to the flesh, you reap a harvest of misery in the flesh, from the flesh. Everybody can relate to that. You sow to the flesh, you're going to reap a harvest from it, if not soon, later. Guaranteed later, if not sooner. Same is true with walking in the spirit, sowing to the spirit. So God exactly, God is like a liberating soldier. He comes in and he doesn't ask people in chains if it's all right if he breaks the chains. He breaks the chains. He invades the so-called free will. People don't have free will from their birth onwards. They have an enslaved will. They can't do anything about their slavery to the flesh. They can't do anything about their slavery to death. They can't do anything about their slavery to the Adamic ontology. That's enslaved. That's not free will. That's enslaved will. So God is not a gentleman like a man is a gentleman. God is gentle like God is gentle. God isn't a gentleman like man. God is a gentle God like man's maker. And that's why it's not a matter of us deciding one day, well, today I'm going to buy a suit and a tie, and I'm going to go out to dinner. Oh, and I'm going to believe in Jesus Christ. It doesn't work that way, friends. It never has. And if that's the faith that people rely on, that's as much a filthy rag as any work they rely on in obedience to the law. The gospel of Jesus Christ is about the integrity of God through the fidelity of his Messiah. Please notice this again. Peter, in summary of all the influence of Paul's epistles on him, says, does not say that by our faith we obtained righteousness, but by God's righteousness, which is the deliverance he effected in Christ, we have obtained faith. All of us have obtained lagkano, 
by lot, not by earning. All of us have obtained by the election of Jesus Christ a faith that's equally privileged, equally valuable, equally precious. So I don't have to look at Peter and say, oh, what great faith he had because he really didn't have great faith. The only time he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus said, blessed are you, Peter, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, including your own. But my father in heaven, my father in heaven just gave you faith through his righteousness. So this is precisely in line with Paul's gospel. Likewise, in 2 Peter 3.13, Peter speaks of looking for a new heavens and a new earth according to God's what? Promise. A new heavens and a new earth according to God's promise. A promise wrapped up in the promise that all humanity would be blessed in Abraham's seed, Christ, but also a promise that echoes through Isaiah 65.17, Behold, I make new heavens, and a new earth where righteousness is at home. Katakeo means righteousness is not only at home, but it's relaxing throughout all of creation. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. That hasn't happened yet. His glory hasn't been universalized yet, but it will be. Paul speaks about this in all of his epistles, meaning put all of Paul's epistles together, and you've got an apocalypse of a new beginning, an apocalypse of the destruction of an old age with its suprahuman enslaving powers and the entrance of a new creation. In Christ, everything is made new. The power of the new creation, the power of the new age is the spirit, the Holy Spirit. The power of the old age is the flesh, the impulsive desire of the flesh. We almost always relate that only to sex, and and there is a sexual desire that is impulsive and out of God's will. Paul said to the Corinthians, I'm not telling you that you can't go out and have a social time with adulterers or swindlers or drug addicts or drunks. You'd have to go out of the world to avoid them. But he said, I do say that if someone is an adulterer in your community, you shouldn't even have something to eat with them. You shouldn't even fellowship with them. You shouldn't even have dinner with them. Because a little leaven, a little allowance for the desire of the flesh in the Adamic ontology will eventually leaven the whole lump. Get the whole church perishing in Adamic ontology. But the impulsive desire of the flesh includes also desires like a desire for being approved through my performance. That's called religion, idolatry. Be careful what you're wildly excited about. I'm wildly excited about the world, or the word rather, and mildly excited about some things that happen in the world, including sports. Mildly excited about sports, wildly excited about the word. We say, that's funny. I'm wildly excited about sports and mildly excited about the word. Get your priorities squared away. They're way off. So then. So I'll choose one over the other all the time. So will I. Okay. So much for pastoral pincushions. I don't want to make you a pastoral pincushion, but I got, if, hey, I got that whole thing over me in Isaiah 48 where it says, Cursed is the pastor, the shepherd, 
whose sword doesn't draw blood. My sword doesn't draw blood if I don't get to you somehow once in a while with the sword of the word. I'm not doing my job. Either that or you're all perfectly righteous already. All right. So then, in 2 Peter 3.13, Peter speaks of looking for, anticipating a new heavens and a new earth according to God's promise. There's the word promise coming into focus again. And then he says, where righteousness is perfectly at home. Katoikeo. Righteousness is universalized. That's what we're waiting for. Is that realized yet? No. Where is the new creation being realized? In the church, the community of God. And the church, the community of God, is either inheriting the kingdom of God through walking in the spirit, or it is biting and devouring one another through gossip and slander and comparisons with I'm doing better under the law than you're doing under the law. And that is a community that cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Paul wrote about it in Galatians 5, 19 to 21. There is no individual applications there. It's an application to communities. Either a community is inheriting the kingdom of God under the right gospel, or a community is functional in the works of the flesh and can't inherit the kingdom of God under the wrong gospel. So then... You can preach the gospel and tell people to believe, or you can preach the gospel including the faithfulness of Christ, and that gospel will elicit faith in the error. That's the difference. One maintains, very subtly, activity in the Adamic ontology, which may at first begin to be performance orientation in the energy of the flesh, but it always ends up in Galatians 5.19, the works of the flesh that are manifest and obvious, which are these. And he lists them and he says, I've told you once before, I'll tell you again that they, the community that does these things, is not inheriting the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not in the midst of that congregation. I was very sad to read an article. I don't know why I read it. I think it was a spinoff of one of the news things. An interview by GQ magazine of Brad Pitt, the actor. He's been going through some tough times. He's recently hit his mid-50s. He talked about his upbringing and his parents. And he said, I heard in their Christianity, he called it, and he called it Christianity, don't do this, don't do that. And then he said, And then they went into a tongue-speaking, charismatic-type thing, and it was even worse, he said. And it was all kinds of goofy scubula, he said. But I thought how sad it is that Christianity to him was that legalistic don't do this and do do that, or don't do this and don't do that, or tongue-speaking maniacs. If only he would hear the real gospel. But I think people's ears get shut up to it because they have already had a misrepresentation of the gospel that has caused people to slander the true gospel. That's what is found in Second Peter. And we'll get there maybe later on in the week. The deliverance of God for all his creation is going to be starkly and continually, universally manifested when his glory is universalized at the consummation of the instauration. What is the instauration? The consummation of it is the universally realized saving impact of the cross. 
Right now, righteousness is at home in the church, which is the proleptic new creation. What does that mean that righteousness is at home in the church of God in Galatians 1.13, which Paul called the Israel of God in Galatians 6.16? Not Gentiles replacing Jews, but a group of former, former Jews and former Gentiles in union with Christ. What does it mean that righteousness is at home in the church? It means that in the church and only in the church, God continues his rectifying or justifying action in mankind. We are always finding out that we're wrong about something because that's God rectifying and reconciling our minds. Righteousness is at home in the church. God's deliverance, his salvific work is happening through the word. The word which is able to save your souls. That's what's going on in the church. That's what goes on in a community that's inheriting the kingdom of God. So that's what this church is going to be. We're not going to be those who don't inherit the kingdom of God. We are those in whom Christ is being formed. That's my whole goal. That's the thing I've fought. That's why I'm on the bleeding edge, and I mean bleeding edge, of the going forth of this true, right gospel. And it's about time it got recovered because it's been lost since the Reformation, largely. Some exceptions, of course, thank God. The community, the church, is the community who are aligning to the real world, to the way things really are. The way things really are is where God is continuing his rectifying, reconciling action. So there's ample evidence in closing that Peter has the same interpretation of righteousness. Here's what I wanted to get numbers about, though. So I'll get you about, I want you to get hit on numbers chapter 23. In 2 Peter, the second chapter, Peter brings up the fact that as in the Old Testament, false prophets were among the people. That means they were prophets that were the people, among the people of God. So there will be false teachers among you. That's what happened in Galatia. They were not false. They were not non-Christians. They were Jewish Christian missionaries, but who were under the influence of false brothers in the Jerusalem church. And these false teachers arose against Paul's gospel. They slandered Paul's gospel. They called Paul a renegade and a maverick. They called Paul everything under the sun. They said his gospel is insufficient to make you behave. And Paul says quite the contrary, Galatians 5 and 6, for example. But there were, as Second Peter says in the second chapter, even as there were false teachers, there were false prophets among God's people in the old times, so there are false teachers in the new. But then he uses the example of Balaam in 2 Peter 2.16. He calls Balaam a prophet, a psychotic prophet. He had a psychotic break, and he needed a conversion. He got a conversion, too. But in 2 Peter 2.16, he spoke of Balaam, who was among the people of God. But he was paid a bribe, probably several million dollars in modern money, by Balak, the king of Moab, who paid him to preach a sermon when all of God's people were joined together to curse them. A sermon that cursed the people of God. And he gave him a lot of money. On the way to preach that message, he was riding on a donkey, 
And it said, the angel of the Lord, which is Jesus Christ, stood in the way. Balaam didn't see it, but the jackass did. And so Peter says in verse 16 of 2 Peter, a dumb ass spoke and rebuked the madness of the prophet. What's the madness of the prophet? Do you think you can speak to curse a people whom God has irreversibly blessed? You got to be out of your mind. You got to be nuts. And he was nuts. So in Numbers 23, what did he say? Look at, look at Numbers 23 if you did go there. Verse 19. What did he say? I'm going to iron this out further in the week, middle of the week, I hope, or sometime. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man. God is a gentleman. He will not invade or intrude himself into your free will. I even said that before. Thank God I'm in the place where God continues his rectifying action. Where we're usually finding out, hey, I was wrong about that. Wrong about that. Wrong about that. God is not a man who lies. Or a son of man, there it means a mere mortal who changes his mind. Does he speak and not act? Or promise and not fulfill? And everyone who preaches the word of God ought to say this along with a converted Balaam. I have indeed received a command to bless. Since he has blessed And I cannot change it. I have received a command to bless. Since he has blessed. That's like Paul saying in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Purge out the old leaven. Even as you already are unleavened. And as he says in Galatians chapter 4 and verses 8 and 9, even as you know God, he said, oh, no, rather, let me say, as you are known by God. Salvation means you are known by God. God does the knowing. God does the saving. God does the calling. God does the sealing. God does the eliciting of your faith through the faithfulness of Messiah. It is you that have made us, not we ourselves. Now, because of the misrepresentation of the gospel as a legalistic thing or as a hyper-spiritual thing or as a you're-going-to-be-cursed thing, which is exactly what the teachers did. They brought in cursing language that you'll be cursed if you don't fulfill the works of the law in Deuteronomy 27, 26. And so Paul said, yes, well, someone became a curse for us because it says in the scripture, cursed is every man who hangs upon a tree. Christ became a curse for us so that the blessing of Abraham might come without obstacle to all the Gentiles as it will come to all the Jews. And so all Israel will be saved. I've preached this word. Now you're the ones that are going to have to put it together in your mind under the power of the Holy Spirit. Best of providence to you. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We're grateful that in a time when the gospel is being evil spoken of because of its misrepresenters, that you are showing us that your truth, that your gospel is a declaration that like Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is invading this enslaved universe and invading an enslaved humanity with a view to rescue 
and liberation. And I thank you, Father, that it was for freedom that you freed us. Grant us the grace then to stand firm in that freedom and not to allow our freedom to be a base of operations for the flesh, but by love. May we love and serve one another.